Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Last week, as some of you know, we had a fundraiser event for Tech Dirt, and particularly for our coverage of Section 230 and the various attempts to repeal or reform this very important bit of internet legislation. As part of the event, which we called Section 230 Matters, we had the two authors of Section 230, that's former Representative Chris Cox and current Senator Ron Wyden, uh, on as a panel to have a discussion about the past, present, and future of Section 230. So we are now releasing that conversation as this week's podcast. So please enjoy. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates and paint and trolls. Document the way that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to our event, Section 230 Matters. Uh, we are very excited to have everyone here. Uh, I am going to very quickly, um, if I can get this figured out, uh, share a window uh, with a presentation, which hopefully this will work. There we go. Uh, welcome to the Section 230 Matters event. Uh, I hope everybody has had a good time so far uh, talking with, with different folks. Uh, we will get to the main event very, very shortly. But first, I wanted to uh, thank our sponsors. Uh, we'll starting with our platinum sponsor, Twitter, uh, who also has uh, supported the uh, uh, the, uh, the lounges that some of you are are seated at. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Uh, our gold sponsors, Automatic and Internet Society, uh, and then all of our uh, other sponsors, Amazon, Discord, Filecoin Foundation, Franklin Square Group, GitHub, Patreon, and Yelp. Um, certainly thank you to all of you uh, for supporting TechDirt, supporting this event, supporting Section 230. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, and also thanks to everybody else who is here, people who purchase tables, individual uh, supporters as well. Again, uh, it's, it's all of it is very, very helpful to us and keeping TechDirt doing what we get to do uh, and, and uh, continuing to, to write about and talk about 230 and all sorts of other things related to the internet. Uh, so very quickly, when we get to the panel section, we will have a Q&A. Uh, there is to the right of the screen, you should be able to see that there is uh, both a, a chat set up, but also a Q&A section. Uh, and you can submit questions in the Q&A uh, and then people can vote on them. Uh, you can put your name on it or you can um, uh, submit the questions anonymously. Uh, in some cases, if we have time and if it makes sense, we may call some of you onto stage to ask your question, but otherwise I'll probably just be reading through the questions. Uh, and, uh, and then after uh, the panel and the, and the discussion, uh, well, after the, the panel and the Q&A, uh, we'll have a continued discussion at the tables. We have sort of a discussion uh, question, uh, lead off question for that. Uh, so I'm starting this with, if this were an actual live event, we would ask you to drink responsibly uh, as the, the Heineken uh, 
marketing thing says. But uh, yesterday, as we were preparing for this, Chris Cox uh, sent me a variation on the famous Heineken drink responsibly line, which was 25 years of Section 230 moderate responsibly, which is perhaps the theme of the, the event today and what we will be discussing. So with that, let's get to our actual panel. Uh, and we have two obviously excellent speakers for this discussion. Uh, we have uh, Chris Cox, uh, who spent many years in Washington, D.C., uh, was originally a, a lawyer for uh, the in the Reagan White House and then was elected to Congress uh, and spent uh, 17 years uh, in the House and then took over as chair of the SEC. Uh, uh, last year, uh, retired as, as president of Morgan Lewis Consulting and was a partner also at Morgan Lewis. Uh, and now it remains on the board of a variety of different organizations, including NetChoice, which does obviously a lot of really good work on Section 230. And then, of course, we have Ron Wynan, uh, who was first elected to the House in 1980 uh, and has been in Congress and then switched from the House to the Senate in 1996 or the election of 96 and 97 uh, and has obviously been a huge supporter of uh keeping the internet open and free in a variety of different ways, uh, both in writing and passing important legislation like 230 and some others, uh, and then also in trying to stop a lot of bad legislation that, that, uh, that tends to, to uh, harm uh, the open internet. So uh, with that, I would like Chris and Ron to both come on stage. Uh, I need to stop my sharing here. Uh, and there we have, Senator Wyden, you're on mute, so you need to unmute. There we go. Uh, and Chris, I need you to turn on your mic and camera as well. And you should be able to join us. There we go. Hey, technology works. <laughs> Platforms like this, enabled by Section 230. <laughs> so uh, Chris and Ron, thank you so much. Uh, for for writing 230 in the first place, and then also for taking time to to join us. So I'm I'm going to start out. I've been framing this as a discussion of the the past, present, and future of 230. So uh, I know you've done it before, but for this crowd, I'd really like it if if you could just describe how 230 came about in the first place. Let's let Chris start. My well, friend, it uh, it was the very first time that uh, Senator Wyden and I, then Representative Wyden, uh, collaborated on internet legislation, but it was not the last. And it was born of a conversation we had at lunch in the House dining room when, believe it or not, back in the 1990s, we were complaining bitterly about the partisanship in Washington uh, and the fact that Democrats and Republicans were poking each other's eyes out, even in the non-election years, and there was no good work getting done, and, and shouldn't, shouldn't there be another way? So at the conclusion of our lunch, we just resolved to look for greenfields, if you will, areas uh, where there were not well-worn partisan ruts, where the solution to the new problems uh, would require some original thinking and where we could build, therefore, some bipartisan goodwill as we solve problems together. And that's where this bill came from. Great, and and uh, I know that that you've mentioned that that you had read about the uh, Prodigy case as as sort of an inspiration for two thirty in particular. Um, do you want to talk a, a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so so another thing, as, as luck would have it, that uh, Ron and I had in common is that we were tech aficionados. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, back then that meant, uh, you know, building your own computers and, and being on the bleeding edge of whatever was going on online. Uh, and so uh, we were quite familiar with the uh, prevalent services of the day, Prodigy, CopyServe, and so on. Uh, and, and so when I was flying back to uh, Washington from California on one of my, you know, weekly cross-continent bus trips, uh, I, uh, I saw this article in the Wall Street Journal and it alarmed me because uh, CompuServe, which I knew to be a very good platform, uh, was being treated differently than Prodigy, which I knew to be a similarly good platform uh, because of one sin that Prodigy committed, and that was trying to have a family-friendly environment, not in terms of substance, by the way, but just in terms of, of civility. You know, so no swearing, no harassment, no bullying, that sort of thing. And because of that, they were made liable uh, in a very expensive lawsuit brought by an investment bank, which turned out to be run by the Wolf of Wall Street, which uh, many of you may have seen uh, in movie theaters. But the, the real Wolf of Wall Street was the guy saying, I've been defamed. And, and it was about to uh, uh, you know, threaten the, the entirety of user-generated content on the Internet. And so it, it cried out for solution, and, uh, and we took off from there. So, and, and Senator Wyden, when uh, Chris first brought this up to you, what was, what was your thinking about it? What was your response? Well, there we were at the end of my health service. And then, of course, Chris went on to additional service as well. And at the end of the 1990s, I just made the judgment that my state, which had always been about forest products, I made the judgment as long as I'm in public service, I'll fight like hell to help those rural communities and wood products. And I said, I want to get into some new stuff. And so Chris and I are sitting there having these lunches and everybody looked at us. It was kind of like, wasn't the Dunce's corner. It was kind of like, these guys are the wonks corner, you know, and they're sitting around kind of scheming on all these wonky things. And as Chris said, we started kind of looking at Prodigy and the like. And I finally said two things. I don't know everything about the internet, but particularly after I got to the Senate, nobody knew how to use a computer at all. So I said, this is a great opportunity and I've got a great partner. And as we looked at it, we basically came up with a twofer. One was we said to ourselves, you know, nobody's going to put a nickel into this thing if they think they're going to get sued personally for doing it. So that was kind of the protection that allowed for the legal certainty. But then we did something that I was proud of, that you didn't always see uh, people of my political philosophy do. I said, let's have some individual responsibility will say that the poster, the person who puts the content up, would be personally on the hook. And that, in effect, caused us to have a shield for the company. In other words, the poster was um, personally responsible for what went up. That provided a shield for the company that could also 
help to trigger, particularly for these small people, uh, some folks investing in them. And then Chris and I said, well, if you're giving people a shield, you better have something to moderate. And that became the sword. And so from those early days, and we had different names for it and the like, that was really the architecture of what we developed. And here we are, 25 <laughs> years later, and you know, people still think that they understand 230, but they really don't. I mean, I will tell you, and I'm not going to get all partisan on this show. I don't think Donald Trump knows the first thing about 230. <laughs> I think he thinks 230 is between two and three o'clock in the afternoon. I don't think he knows a damn thing about it. But Chris and I have maintained that certainly we're open to hearing people's ideas and suggestions. But I think we did something that really made, you know, a difference. And um, and even now, you look at the Me Too movement, you look at Black Lives Matter. I mean, Chris is the real lawyer of the two of us. My wife agreed to marry me because she said, you're not a real lawyer. You're like that Grey Panther guy. I've heard all about you. You're the Grey Panther. Chris, the real lawyer. But real lawyers will tell you that they're not sure the Me Too movement could have gotten off the ground without the ability to be online at moderated sites because those people were so powerful. So um, Chris and I have had a wonderful ride, 25 you know, years. Sometimes just for the hell of it, I want to pick up the phone and just talk to them because <laughs> we've so enjoyed each other's company over the years. So were, were you surprised at, at how sort of integral 230 became to to the Internet? I mean, I know, you know, you had your ideas uh, back when when you were when you wrote the bill and, and got it in there. But um, has it taken you by surprise at how, how important it has become and sort of how central it's, it's become to the Internet itself, let alone the debate o over everything that's happened over the last few years? I, I always thought it would be very helpful, but I certainly didn't expect, and Chris and I were kibitzing about this not that long ago. People write these articles. Well, this law that Chris Cox and Ron Wyden wrote has created $2 trillion worth of wealth in the private sector. And their argument was that you wouldn't have had the innovation and the like without this bill. Even my wife was pretty skeptical that I'd been involved in creating something that helped to generate $2 trillion worth of wealth in the private sector. So the answer to your question, Mike, and I'd be interested in what Chris thinks, I thought it would be useful. I never thought that it would achieve this level of being a central role in the whole debate about innovation. Yeah, I, I completely agree because while the internet truly was different back then in the 1990s, its promise was manifest. Uh, there were millions of people on these sites uh, on a daily basis back then. Now there are billions and you know, surely increasing things by orders of magnitude uh, makes a difference. The difference that it makes all tends in the direction of the rationale for 230 in the first place. That being that when you've got lots of people converging on a single platform, it flips the model that had been in place theretofore for federal regulation 
of communications because that was you know, newspapers, radio, television, and so on, where you had you know, a single point from which emanated content that went to millions or billions, ultimately perhaps, uh, of passive receptors. Comes the internet, it's the opposite. And now you have millions of content creators that are converging on a single platform. So the idea that the single platform is now going to somehow you know, take responsibility for what all these third-party content creators are doing made no sense then, makes even less sense today. So I'm not at all surprised that 230 has become more of a linchpin now than, than ever. Well, I, I think that gets to a question that a lot of people have certainly been asking. They say that, you know, 25 years ago when 230 was first written, you know, it was the nascent internet industry. And nowadays, obviously, the internet is everything uh, and is huge and, and giant. And, and so, you know, one of the arguments that people make is that 230 isn't necessary anymore. How do, how do you guys respond to that? Well, I, I don't I don't see how you have Yelp and Reddit and all kinds of um, sites. But here's the point. Mike, one of our biggest challenges is explaining what 230 is all about. You know, a lot of people say, you know, if we just got rid of 230 and these guys who pushed it, you know, that would take care of slime and hate and racism online. And I point out that if you got rid of 230, you'd have all that stuff there because it's the First Amendment that greenlights all of it, not Section 230. So that's um, number one. And second, I listened to all these people saying it's about big tech, big tech, big tech. The fact is there's thousands and thousands of websites. And you know some of the legislation that's being introduced, you know, uh, if you had some small payment or something, you couldn't have web hosting at your senior citizen center. I mean, some of these articles are all about, you know, there isn't anybody out there except Facebook and Google and all the rest. Um, Chris and I, from day one, were concerned about the person who didn't have power, didn't have clout, couldn't spend a fortune on legal bills. That remains my big interest today. And by the way, when it came to really protecting 230, the big guys sold them out. You know, they had gotten their own. They pulled up the drawbridge and, and Facebook said, hey, this SESTA-FOSTA, which was a horrendous bill, which just drove the bad guys who were doing sex trafficking over the dark web. Facebook was very happy to just sell everybody out. They felt they could monetize any claims who cared about 230. They had made theirs. They benefited from 230 when they were little. And that's really where our hearts still are is the big guys can take care of themselves. They don't have anything to worry about. We yeah, I, I want to second ex exactly what Ron is saying here, that you know, prior to the internet, the way for uh, any of us uh, on this video connection today to express ourselves would be to write a letter to the editor and hope that maybe we'd get fortunate and somebody printed. Of course, it's very short. Uh, letters to the editor can't be very long. And as we all know, there's limited space. And, and most of the time, your letters to the editor did not get printed. Uh, you compare that to everybody's opportunity now to find some online platform that will host their content. And not just about politics, but about, about everything. And so the other important piece that is essential 
uh, to empowering individuals to speak is that there be platforms that will host that content and in the prevalent models you know, without charge. Uh, that's what has come to typify the modern internet. And that's why section 230 is so important now, more important than ever before. You've got billions of internet users that have become content creators, as I mentioned, but equally they've become reliant on content created by others. Um, I mean, just think about this. Uh, it's 2021, but you know, last year uh, before there was COVID, you know, we had the deadliest tornado season since 2011. Uh, and people couldn't have found their loved ones without user-created content on the Internet. Every day, and, and just to, to put a fine point on something that Ron said, it isn't just thousands of websites that are regulated by 230. It's over 200 million apps that you can get on your iPhone in the United States of America from this country and from around the world. So every day you've got millions of Americans relying on things like how to and educational videos for everything from healthcare to home maintenance. We couldn't have fixed our our uh, uh, garbage disposal or our our uh, dishwasher without the YouTube videos. Thank God for the people who take the time to put the instructions up online because the manufacturers seem not to. But but they need a platform in, in order to be able to do that, uh, and it needs to be reasonably frictionless, which these days it is. During COVID, obviously, online access to user-created uh, pre-K and primary and secondary education and lifelong learning was a godsend for families across the country and around the world, for that matter. So, uh, you know, that's what what really this discussion needs to focus on is is not the paradigm of the you know biggest tech giants that everybody loves to hate, but the literally millions and, and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of websites uh, that are dependent on this legal certainty in order to exist. Yeah. So one of, one of the things that, that has come up a lot, right. You know, right now that two thirty is under such attack is, you know, people are pointing to, you know, legitimate concerns, I think, about things that are happening online, whether it's, you know, attacks or disinformation or hate speech or, or, or questions about privacy, um, you know, and, and a lot of people seem to think that 230 is, is the tool to, to fix that. Um, I personally disagree. I don't see how it fixes any of those particular issues. Um, do you have a, a sense, one, of why everyone is focused on 230 in particular? And, and two, if, you know, are there better approaches that you think are, are worth exploring rather than, you know, trying to undermine 230 uh, as a way of dealing with those challenges? Well, Mike, first of all, when Chris and I got started, nobody ever heard about 230. And I remember even sometimes people bring it up and everybody in the audience had no idea what it was. And I walked away thinking a bunch of people thought it was an antifreeze that I'm going to go buy some 230 for their um, car. So I think it would be fair to say that nobody in America really knew what 230 was until Donald Trump came out of nowhere and started at political rallies saying, you know, get rid of 230. And people, holy Toledo. This is what we're talking about at a political rally. And the fact was, and I've already told you that I don't think Donald Trump would know 230 if it hit him in the head, is that he wanted to force Twitter 
to print his lies about something that I felt really strongly about, which is and I pointed out the hypocrisy that he voted by mail, but he didn't want anybody else to you know, vote by mail. So I'm not surprised when the president of the United States uses their bully pulpit day after day after day to say that the problem in America is 230, that he gets a bunch of, of followers. But the fact is you get rid of 230 and you take away what we thought was so important, which is the opportunity for people at sites to aggressively moderate and get rid of slime and filth and the like, when the First Amendment is the biggest challenge, not 230. And I think it'd be a big mistake. Now, should people do better about moderating? Absolutely. I've gone so far as to tell some of the bigger people in the field, they said, guys, if you don't do a better job of using the sword to moderate, people are going to come after that shield. So you better get going. And I continue to say that. Um, so looking towards, I guess, the future uh, of 230, um, you know, it's it's now so much under attack. Do you think that that 230 can survive in, in its current form? Do you, you know, what do you think are the is the likelihood that, you know, there, there were, you know, over a dozen different bills and, and more showing up every day. Um, you know, what is the likelihood that that you know two thirty goes away or gets significantly modified? Well, I, 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 might be my turn to speak. Although clearly I'm not here in California. What the hell do I know about what's going on in the Capitol? Uh, so, so rather than you know give you an up of a second read on what everybody in Congress is thinking, because Ron will do better by far on that. Uh, I'll just tell you what I have observed uh, from afar. And that is that many, not all, but many of the legislators that have been tackling the real problems uh, associated with litigation around 230 uh, and associated with content moderation more generally, and as Ron says, not all those problems are 230 problems have been doing so with an admirable dose of humility. It's one of the things that we have to realize is that one thing for Ron and I to do this back in the 90s, it's another thing now that the internet is what it is for somebody to come in and say, I'm gonna just tweak this little rammer frammer here and see what happens. Uh, you know, this is, there's a lot of people that rely on a lot of things in a very complicated world uh, that, that are connected to the internet and so, uh, what may seem like a modest tweak or, or what may seem reasonable on its face could surprise the hell out of everyone once we see it in operation. And, and I think that a lot of legislators understand this. So, so if there is that kind of humility as we approach this, uh, then I think it is possible. Uh, after all, uh, uh, at least speaking for myself, you know, we did not uh, engrave this law in stone and, and bring it down from you know, on high. Uh, uh, instead, you know, this was meant to be exactly what it says. Uh, it is meant to make sure that the prodigies of the world are not penalized for moderating content in good faith, reasonable ways, and, and to make sure that no one expects the operator of a platform uh, in real time somehow 
uh, without you know, interrupting the real-time flow of information on the internet uh, to know what millions of people are bringing across its portal because otherwise user-generated content would go away. Uh, so, uh, so we'll see. Now, there is, uh, there is other legislation that uh, is not so temperate uh, that I think is very dangerous. Uh, and, and so I think this requires a great deal of watching and care and involvement by everybody who, who has anything to do with, with the Internet. Lastly, uh, let me just say that, that the process itself uh, of lawmaking uh, makes this a more dangerous enterprise now than it was in the 90s. Uh, when you've got so many different committees of jurisdiction in the House and in the Senate, so many opportunities for markup, and you've got you know conference committees after the Senate, you know, as it's pretty much open season on the floor during consideration of a final bill, and you don't know what amendments are going to come up. You can start with something as pure as the driven snow that everybody agrees would be a great change to 230. And by the time you get done, you could be horrified at the result. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. Um, so we're, we're going to start to move to, to audience questions. I know we've got a whole bunch in there uh, and people are voting on them. If, if other people want to want to vote, if you click over to the Q&A tab, uh, you can see the questions. You can add your own. Again, you can do it with your name or without. Uh, depending on how you feel, and you can vote on the different questions. So I'm just going to start with with the top voted question, uh, which is how best can we get folks to properly understand Section 230, particularly when it seems that um, that many are either reluctant to realize that they don't understand it, or even worse, they don't want to understand it. Well, I think, Mike, uh, I think part of it is the latter. They just refuse to look at the facts. And uh, in particular, this argument about the First Amendment is central. If Chris Cox and I disappeared, if 230 disappears, the slime, the hate, the racism is going to continue online because 98% of all speech is protected by the First Amendment. And I remember uh, back when we were getting started, the New York Times had a big article on Chris and I, big pictures of our punum, you know, everything right on the on the New York Times. And underneath it, it said something along the lines of hate-driven speech is enabled by Section 230, by the law 230. And we called them up and said, guys, that's just love your paper. That's just factually wrong. It's the First Amendment. And they actually printed a full correction on it, basically said hate-driven speech is coming from the First Amendment. I, I wanted to use, apropos of your last question, what should be people be working on right now? And I'll give you like three examples. Right up at the top of my list is algorithm accountability. I think when you look at, like Chris and I did a long time ago, at the big challenges, these algorithms, which have got this kind of scientific credibility now, but really are people's biases baked in, ought to be where we start. And Senator Booker and I have introduced legislation sponsored by uh, Congresswoman Yvette Clark. Many members of the Congressional Black Caucus are interested in the idea. Let's examine these algorithms. Let's fix them. Let's expose the problems. That would be number one. Privacy would be number two. Um, 
My bill, Mind Your Own Business Act, is the toughest bill on offer, you know, right now. And third, I think we ought to say in America, we're going to treat broadband like uh, we did electricity decades ago. We're going to take the steps so that everybody in America has access to broadband. And so I'm pleased to be able to announce on your program that I'm going to say as chairman of the finance committee, I'm now um, the chairman, every single infrastructure bill, every single one that is passing through, I'm going to do everything I can to expand broadband until we get to the point in America where broadband is like electricity. Those three things strike me as a lot more important than trying to unravel the First Amendment, harm the kind of little person we're concerned about, the people, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, and, and all this stuff that I think doesn't come close to my two-part test. My two-part test for bills is what does it do to constitutionally protected speech and what does it do to moderation? Those two are, part, are my part of assessing, you know, bills and the stuff on offer is not close. Yeah. Um, so the next question comes from uh, Rob Winterton uh, from NetChoice, who does a lot of work advocating around 230. And, and it's a question that I think a lot of people are thinking about who, who are advocating for 230. And they're saying, what do, you, what do you think that advocates of maintaining Section 230 are getting wrong when they discuss the law? Uh, with those who who are more sympathetic to to the repeal or reform approach, because it it feels like sometimes that message is not getting through the importance of two thirty. So how how could people be better advocates? Well, I'll just go back to what and there's a very good piece um, in the uh, in the Stanford um, tech uh, tech publication that just you know came out. The real challenge. It's the First Amendment. It's not 230. And all these people running around with these anti-230 bills, they're not talking about getting rid of the First Amendment. But 98% of all speech is protected by the First Amendment. So if there's one thing I would ask advocates to do, tell people that. If Chris Cox and I disappear off the face of the planet and you get rid of 230, the First Amendment still green lights, most of what we all find so offensive. That's the number one thing I think that needs to be done. You know, continuing with that theme of making sure that in this discussion, everybody's working with the same set of facts, uh, I think we need to do some listening. Um, so when we're talking with people about 230, we need to understand their assumptions about how the law works. Uh, because as the New York Times example illustrates, you know, sometimes there's a, a fundamental assumption that's being made that might be either completely or partially in error. So, so one of the things that I think we can do in addition to stressing what the First Amendment is going to continue to allow people do that, to do that, that we might not otherwise agree with or like, uh, you know, listening to, uh, is that the law, Section 230 itself, is not the shield that everyone claims it is, um, you know, just to put a fine point on it, the law itself, it's in subsection F of 230, you go back and read it, says that every civil litigant can successfully target illegal online speech or information or activity 
uh, by pleading in a lawsuit that the defendant was at least partially complicit in the creation of that illegal content, or at least the later development of it. In all those cases, Section 230 immunity does not apply. Uh, in that respect, uh, I think the form uh, that we used, uh, Ron and I, back in the day, uh, to write this law clearly followed function. Congress intended that this legislation would provide no protection for any website, for any user or anybody else involved, even in part, through an algorithm or what have you, in the creation or development of content that is tortious or criminal. And that specific intent is clearly expressed in the definition of information content provider that's in subsection F3 of the law. So, you know, that's a little technical, but, I, you know, at some point we have to get on all fours about what the law really does. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a good point. Um, the next question is a good one. It's it's one that's come up uh, a bunch, which is basically says that you know the the concept behind two thirty is that you know holding the users liable for their own speech makes a lot of sense and is a great concept, great in concept, but at times uh, runs into a, an issue of if the platforms don't know who the user is, uh, and so you have like anonymous speech, and so if the anonymous speech is, for example, defamatory, then the question is how can users uh, go after, you know, how can people go after uh, those users? And is that an area where 230, you know, breaks down? So the question is, you know, how do you address that issue where you have users who can't be identified on platforms? Well, Ron is uh, taking a deep pause. I probably should too uh, before uh, tackling this one because it is a serious issue. And it has been for a long time, uh, you know, throughout the 25 years of the case law. The law abhors the wrong without a remedy. And so if you've got a case where somebody did it and we don't know who it is, uh, which, by the way, was the situation in Prodigy itself, uh, then you're off to a bad start. Uh, the trouble is that for Congress to fix it through a law is extremely problematic. The history of anonymous speech, uh, particularly when it comes to politics, uh, you know, going back for centuries, uh, has quite a pedigree. And, and if people are just absolutely forbidden to express themselves anonymously, we will lose a great deal uh, as a nation. Uh, so for the government to force uh, everyone to disclose themselves on every subject, you know, would, would have grave First Amendment implications. But uh, there is certainly something that platforms can do. Uh, you know, it, it's and perhaps not every platform, but but a platform that chose to do so could link uh, your credit card, you know, with you know the ability to open an account or what have you, and then uh, you know, in a pinch when there's serious criminality or illegality, then uh, you would not be able to hide behind your anonymity. Um, but these are, these are difficult challenges. And, and by the way, I, I have not seen legislation in Congress that's really aimed at this, I think precisely for that reason. But I, I do not want to gainsay for a moment that it's an issue. And Mike, I, I agree with everything Chris said, and I come back to the fact that from the very beginning, Chris and I said, Nobody is exempt from any federal law, you know, under this. And certainly the question of anonymity represents a special kind of, of challenge. And this would be a great opportunity for the private sector to look at ways 
with their contracts and the like to try to create incentives for dealing with it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Oh, go ahead. I can just you know capitalize on what Ron just said because I, I should have touched on that myself. The, the, the fact that uh, there might be some culpability that lies rest with the platform itself is all that it takes uh, for the feds to come crashing down on them. Uh, the law itself, Section 230, completely exempts from the shield that it provides uh, anything having to do with federal criminal law. So uh, as we saw with Backpage, even before FOSTA and SESTA got signed into law, they got shut down by the feds who finally got around to prosecuting the platform. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the only other point that I'll, I'll raise is that, you know, most uh, major platforms, if they're, you know, if, if there's a lawsuit and, and a person can't be identified and there's a, a judgment on it, we'll pull down that content. There are ways to deal with it that don't, don't require wrecking 230. Um, and so as a, as a final question, I'll go with the, the, the remaining most highly voted question here, which is going back to the beginning again, was there any resistance to Section 230 or, or the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act, as you guys called it originally. What, was there resistance when, when you first proposed it? Chris? Ron, you're, you're uh, giving me, you should give me softballs. Uh, but this one, this one really is not a hard question. Uh, uh, the, the nice thing about it was that this challenge fit with the paradigm that Ron and I had constructed at our launch. It was novel. It was a new issue, and it was it was that didn't make it easy. But what it meant is that we had the luxury of of thinking through these problems, you know, one step at a time with our Democratic and Republican colleagues uh, in both the House and in the Senate. And even though we were both in the House at the time, there were a lot of senators who were deeply involved in this. Uh, Pat Leahy, for example, uh, and uh, so it it. Uh, it did not encounter resistance because uh, it was really a thought experiment. The other thing that, that uh, was a unique luxury, certainly in my experience, is that we weren't lobbied on it. Uh, the tech companies uh, didn't have Washington lobbyists. They didn't get around to this for you know, until later. Uh, and so it was this Garden of Eden in terms of legislating where you had Republicans and Democrats. You know, we could have been you know, back in, in the uh, days of what we romanticize as Greek democracy, you know, thinking about what would be the wisest choice. Um, it, it won't be like that when you get to amending Section 230. I assure you, there'll be lobbyists all over. Mike, the other aspect of this is nobody had any idea what Chris and I were up to. <laughs> and the theater <laughs> was something called the Communications Decency Act. And the old school was walking around with all these pictures of these horrible things. And Chris and I said, yeah, it's horrible. I, we just don't think it's a good idea to try to set up this, you know, big run from Washington censorship program. So, you know, the House is working and the Senate is working and we're huffing and puffing. And Congress does what Congress does so well, which is when there's a big issue we kind of punted. And so in this Communications Decency Act, there was embedded two bills. The old school, um, which uh, I believe the Senator from South Dakota 
uh, had been pushing was put in there. And what Chris Cox and I had done was put in there. And they both sat there side by side. And the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court strikes down what this um, fellow from South Dakota wanted and upholds what Chris and I wanted. And there you are, who'd have thunk it? And really, hardly anybody is around from those days, but Ed Markey, who was our colleague in the House, now in the Senate, was laughing about it the other day where he said he was the leader of the House um, conference. And he said, you know, everybody just said, put them both in. We'll see what happens. And, you know, by dint of the congressional, let's please everybody agenda. Let's put them both in there. They both sat there, you know, kind of enjoying their brief period in the sun. And then the Supreme Court struck down the kind of run from Washington approach. Yeah, our, our approach. You know, the, it went so far as uh, when we debated in the House on what to do in the Telecommunications Act on this subject, uh, we ended up having, you know, an afternoon's debate about uh, Ron's and my bill, during which we hammered the hell out of the bill from the senator's name was Jim Exxon, hammered yeah, the hell out of the right. That's who it was. <laughs> hammered the hell out of it and said, you know, his proposal is going to come down the internet to the level of what children, what's acceptable for children, because that's really what it was going to do. And that he just didn't understand that that's that the internet couldn't function that way. Um, and so everybody came to the floor and said, Exxon's a nice guy. And, and, you know, anything having to do with pornography in front of children, you know, we want people to go to jail. And one of the Democratic uh, speakers said that, you know, she had supported, the, uh, you know, life imprisonment for this sort of thing and so on. So nobody was soft on it, but they understood that it wasn't going to work. And uh, the bill that we brought to the floor passed with something like 420 votes out of 435. Uh, and then when it came to reporting the full, so that was a, a solo vote on just our piece, which became Section 230. And then the full Telecommunications Act that we sent to conference with the Senate had our bill and not Exxon's. So, so it was quite a pointed statement that we wanted to do it this way and not that way, even though 96, I think, senators had voted for Exxon because they saw it as a vote against pornography and didn't want to be as uh, you know, weak on that uh, to the folks back home. And then, as, and then Ron told you then what happened. In the end, they said in conference, well, senators already all voted for it. We're sticking that in. And uh, guys voted for it. The House will stick that in and see what happens. We won in the Supreme Court what we could not win in conference. And Exxon, by way of a little bit of cleanup for my being loose with the facts, Exxon was from Nebraska. But Chris is absolutely right. They went back and forth and back and forth. And then that's what Congress does best. Let's throw it all in and we'll resolve it another day.
or, or leave it up to the Supreme Court to resolve it. Court, yeah. uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the Supreme Court uh, worked out the way it did because, uh, yes, the, the Exxon bill was, was hugely problematic. And obviously your bill was, was, was very, very helpful and has been helpful and remains helpful 25 years later. Uh, and it is not just for big tech. It has protected uh, me and TechDirt as well. We've used 230 in, in court. Um, unfortunately, we had to be in court, but it helped protect us. Uh, well, hat, tip to the, hat tip to the courts. Not only was this nearly <laughs> unanimous in the House, but it was a nine zip decision in the Supreme Court. Also a, a very, very good point. Uh, and so I, I, I want to thank both of you, obviously, for, for, for creating 230 and, and for taking the time to, to join this conversation, which was absolutely fascinating. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm glad we were able to do it in the midst of a pandemic with, with this particular software, which I think also is thanks to 230 that this kind of thing can exist. Uh, and I'm sure that, that our audience is clapping, but we can't hear it, unfortunately, with the way this software is created. But uh, I wanted to thank both of you for, for taking the time. And I, I hope, Mike, 25 years from now, who's ever having debates about technology and innovation really has the same reverence for the First Amendment and this kind of freedom to, to innovate because the founding fathers got a lot right. They got a lot right. But their kind of lodestar was the issue that we're talking about in terms of the First Amendment and speech and and in innovation. And uh, I hope 25 years from now, there'll be people talking about all of the policies and the questions that will ensure that what the founding fathers came up with uh, then, that their genius is still what we're building on. Great, great. And Chris, any, any last words from you as well? Happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 25 years. We'll get an ice cream cone on it, Chris, like we did before. That's right. That's right. Everybody. Mike, thanks, friend. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, turn off the, the presentation now. I'm going to send it back to the tables. Um, there are other questions in, in the Q&A that if people want to discuss, they can do that. Um, the, the question I was going to set up everybody with was, was basically, I know that um, you know a lot of people here work in technology. A lot of people here rely on 2.30 and I, I wanted people to discuss, you know, how, how would you have to change the service that you operate or how do you think the internet would change uh, if 2.30 went away or if it was reformed significantly? Um, but we're gonna just open it back up to the tables. I know a lot of people had really good discussions before. Uh, you can discuss that or you can discuss uh, any of the other questions or you can just sit around and discuss. We'll have this open for another 45 minutes to an hour or so. So thank you again to everybody. Thank you to the sponsors. Thank you to everybody who's attending. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Okay.